Okay. All right. So, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Untangling Circularity podcast, where we answer our fashion economy, fashion circular economy questions and bring you along for the conversation. I am Cynthia Power, owner of circular consultancy Multivolte, and I have 15 years experience in the fashion, uh, sustainability, and circularity industry. And I'm Laura Novich, partner at Hilo, which is a materials consultancy, and I have over 10 years experience in materials reuse. Uh, today, we are really excited. We are addressing our interest and questions about hyperlocal reuse with Lisa Goldsand, who has created an amazing business called Circular Thrift in Columbus, Ohio. So Lisa, you were in our prep a minute ago. You were about to tell us how you started our day, and we thought it was uh, apropos of this conversation. So before we talk about your background and everything, how did you start your day? Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for asking. And I also want to say I'm just so excited to be here talking about the circular economy with both of you. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Absolutely. So, so I started my day by rushing out to get coffee for a pack of volunteers who showed up at my garage, which is also known as my sort facility. So my children sometime wander in there looking for sports equipment and I've either sold it, given it away or put it in the shed. Um, and so uh, three of us sorted about 400 units of clothing that had piled up in my garage over about a 10 day period. And we had a specific recipient for whatever um, we decided, you know, I didn't think I could use within the circular economy of Bexley. And I'll tell you about that in a second. So as we speak, someone um, from a resource center that is funded by a church is driving up to pick up uh, nine bags of clothing that we've, we've sorted. We know it's clean. We've sorted it by product category. Uh, we've sorted it by you know size grouping and so that's all product that is very very likely going to end up in the hands of someone of a family a person who actually needs that stuff so that's how i spent my day and um it involves a lot of schlepping and lifting of boxes and um i discovered a mouse living in my garage so you know it's all oh it's a friday morning yeah mouse is cute yeah i was gonna say how you spent your day that's how you spent your morning it's very yeah. impressive <laughs> So thank you for that. And maybe um, with that, can you give us a brief kind of intro to you? Like just kind of, you know, if you want to give a sentence or two on your background and then if you want to tell us a bit about circular thrifts and kind of how you got what you're up to and how you got there. Yeah, sure. So um, my background, the, the short version is I spent the last 30 years in what we on this podcast would would know of as the linear economy, right? The linear manufacturing model of extractive, you know, take, make waste. So I worked for a denim manufacturer that was a supplier to pretty much all of the major, major brands for about eight years. And then uh, for the, the past 20 years, I worked in supply chain operations sourcing uh, for Abercrombie and Fitch. And so, uh, but even before that, I had lived in China uh, during college um, and really knew I was really interested in being involved somehow in manufacturing. So I'm very, you know, process oriented. I love to organize things and kind of, you know, solve problems. And really throughout my career, I've enjoyed 
understanding kind of how things work and and sort of studying the eco ecosystems, right? So I've always known, I've always felt like I was sort of living two lives. Like Abercrombie, by the way, is a wonderful company, big brands, maybe we'll get, get into this in a minute. Big brands face real big challenges in figuring out how to shift the way that they approach manufacturing from the way that it's been for the past number of decades to the way that it probably needs to go. But I did feel like I was sort of living two lives. Like I was very sustainable in my, in home at home, um, and I really I knew that with the next chapter of my career, I wanted to do something that was really purpose driven and you know did have a uh, either a social or environmental impact. So about a year ago, um, I started thinking about what I felt about sustainability in fashion. And also what I, you know, this is qualitative at this point, but what I believe a lot of consumers around me also feel too, which is there's just kind of a big, there's a big gap in two ways. There's a big gap between how people, what people's intentions are regarding sustainable fashion. Like there are a lot of people that want to do something. They feel responsible to be a part of a solution, but the solutions all seem to be centralized or far away from where they you know live their lives. Mm -hmm. And so and so that's one thing that I wanted to to think about about solving in the sense that what can a regular person do? How can a regular person be, you know, a part of of some kind of incremental incremental change associated with with fashion? And so the other thing that I that I came to conclude is I've, I'm super interested in the idea of, of longer term solutions for post-consumer textile waste. So, you know, what hopefully will come to the U.S. eventually, which is the idea of closed loop fiber to fiber recycling. But that's we're working on it. So, you know, again, thinking about what is the most practical solution, you know, at a macro level in sustainable fashion, it really is reuse. So yeah. I've thought a lot about reuse and how to scale reuse, right? And I've thought a lot about, as I mentioned, the fact that I believe that consumers want to do something they just don't know what to, what to do, right? Yeah. And then the other part being, I think that there is, so many people are doing such great things, right? But there is, generally speaking, such a gap in consumer experience between, I want to go buy something new, what are my options? versus I'd like to reuse, what are my options, right? And so um, I I decided to launch a hyper-local solution to reuse because I think that's a way that you can make it more normative, more fun, more community building for people who could afford to go and buy something new to yeah. do something different, right? So honestly, ladies, all I'm trying to do is change consumer behavior. That's cool. <laughs> you know, uh, just a small, a small task, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's why I think. <laughs> yeah, we want to hear. We want to hear about circular thrift, which is the organization you started, right? Um, but I think that's where our interest mm -hmm. is because, you know, we're in alignment, or I'm in alignment with so much of what you said. Mm -hmm. And I won't speak like we like we're married or something. I, I won't do that. Like, I mean, our favorite food is. <laughs> Uh, but I think in this case it was a way. So I'm okay yeah. with being married to you in that sense. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> so. Um, just this idea that yes, there are these big solutions, but what are the 
what are the super local solutions and who I think in my opinion like who is innovating in this space mm -hmm. because yes there's like the local charity thrift shop we're all you know know and love yeah. but like what are the other iterations of that so yeah please tell us yeah. about circular thrift and kind of what what that looks like operationally so I'm trying yeah so operationally I have publicly accessible bins, which I'm proud to say I made myself all from about $40 spend at Lowe's and they have no plastic on them. So I have I have publicly accessible bins um, where people can just drop things and things that they're done using. So there's one at the library, there's one at City Hall, you know, just places that, that people in my community might just pass by as they live their lives. And then I also offer front door pickup so I've sort of jerry-rigged Calendly and uh, somebody can just schedule me, give their address, schedule a time that's convenient for them. And I will go and pick up by bike, weather permitting, whatever they're done using. And so I also then have, uh, I had seven so far this year, I have these, these very customer segment focused or product category focused swap events. So I've done them for infant wear for, you know, kids wear like elementary school age uh, size bracket uh, for work attire. I, I try to keep it gender neutral. It, I do find that women, people mm -hmm. who identify as women are, and wear women's clothing are engaging more. But I think that, you know, there's a lot of interest on the on the side of everybody, right, in, in reuse. Can um, I just make a quick note about that, just anecdotally? Thread Up does not sell yeah. men's clothing. Yeah. It is like, to me, it is the most interesting and frustrating and it, I think points to exactly what you're yeah. saying. I don't think men are out there thrifting their lives away. Well, I <laughs> most think, men, I don't yeah. know. It's a small yeah. amount and most men like historically just hold on to their clothes for as long as possible and aren't as with trends as good point others. But um, also in some of the research I've done in surveys, uh, it's usually women that are participating in reuse and repair in general. And that's who's identifying in there. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do want to say one thing about the younger consumer who I see with my pop-up sales. So the last, and, and there are, there are quite a, quite a number of men who seem to be really interested in it. So I'm, I'm really excited about that too. Yeah. So in addition then to the, the swap events, I have, um, I have pop-up thrift events. And so I might rent like the senior center and have an event where I, you know, advertise that it's, you know, just come for a sale. Um, I've had a couple of of sort of private trunk sales in my in my home. If there if there are people who have a bunch of friends that are interested in sustainable fashion, and I can pull out exactly what they might want to might want to buy, that's been actually really fun, almost like a Tupperware party, but for sustainability, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> um, and then I bought a trike. I had a, a trike made by Haley Tricycles. We need a whole other podcast to talk about Stephen Horcha from Haley Tricycles. He's amazing. But anyway, I had this item, this trike designed just for selling clothing. So it's really cool. I bike up, you know, to wherever I want to sell and I open it up and the 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 hanging racks are actually, they sit at the top of the trike when it's all put together. And when I open it, then I have like two racks for hanging. So it's the coolest thing. I'm like, I literally feel like I'm Mary Poppins. I bike up and I like, you know, can get everything set up for a sale in like less than five minutes. Wow. And yeah. it's a fun conversation topic. Like I can't get from Main Street, you know, to the to my house. It's like a mile away. 
without four people stopping me. I mean, people stop me in their cars. Like, it's just, it's so cute. The trike is such a great tool. And it's also part of that hyper-local, you know, mm -hmm. hype, for lack of a better word, right? It's it's fun to see some crazy person show up on a trike and like start selling things. It's just, yeah. it's, it's weird and wacky. And it seems to be drawing a lot of engagement of all, really all, you know, customer segments. And I'm really excited about that. Yeah. So I guess the last thing I should mention is what I started with, how I started my day, right? The the I did not aspire when I um when I started this to become an expert in clothing resale. I love it, but the the goal of this business is sustainability. The goal of this business is to put to keep clothing in circulation for absolutely as long as possible especially because as we've as i think we all know true end of life solutions just haven't really scaled yet right so <laughs> knowing that 65 to 70% of the embodied resources are in what we bought and took home and put in our closets and it doesn't matter if it's from Walmart or Saks right by virtue mm -hmm. of how much resources it took to drill for right or grow the materials right because 80 some percent of what we wear is some combination of polyester or cotton and then all of the chemicals water resources etc it took to bake the fabric so by the time you've done that you know that's really what we need to figure out how to how to valorize so so i'm really mm -hmm. excited about the circularity aspect of the 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 whole model in that regard yeah um Wonderful. I want to pair it back to you from, no, from previous conversations also, I just want to make sure for people listening. So you collect a bunch of stuff from your local community, and then you will have swaps that are category specific. So you can, sorry, you collect it, you sort it by category, you yeah. make sure it's clean, you kind of give it a once over so that you only have good stuff in there. Then right. you do category specific swaps. Um, so people can participate who gave you clothes, um, right? And yep. then also do some selling of the stuff that is not swapped. Um, it sounds like in different venues at different moments in your community. And then um, like you had alluded to about this morning and somebody from the local church coming to pick up things, you also do donations. And so are those the kind of swapping, selling and donations, are those the three ways that you're really getting that reuse to go as long as possible? Yes, yeah. There is, that's exactly right. On my horizon, I do think there is an opportunity for um, upcycle. Like I think mm -hmm. I'm interested in the future and thinking about the things that we kind of know aren't gonna sell when we drop them off at a, at a charity and you know we can get into what those are. I am also interested you know, down the road in figuring out how do you get creatives around mm -hmm that you know that that waste and get something really interesting that could potentially scale as a new market so but yeah for the moment it's just as you said cool yeah and can i want to ask a uh, i don't know i think it might be a quick follow-up question or can you just if i was listening i'd be like are you making any money yeah <laughs> so you, can you talk a little bit about i mean you can share as much or as little as you want but like do you, are you making any money and do you feel like there's a viable solution here for livelihood? Yeah, that is a great question. And um, I want to, I also want to tell you, I've, I've, there's been a lot of wringing of hands and gnashing of teeth as I started about whether I should be a not-for-profit or mm -hmm. unapologetically for-profit. And I am unapologetically for-profit 
with a social enterprise component, right? And the reason, the reason is, short answer is yes, I am already seeing um, a pathway toward profitability. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the sales component is, again, I, I, I'm new at it and I, you know, I don't want to share numbers yet because I, I'd like to have a few more months of, of sales history behind me, but I am confident that, you know, because your, your margin is a hundred percent, right? In affluent neighborhoods. And that's another really important component of this. I think my, the target is to change consumer behavior among the people that have the wealth and are the most prolific consumers, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the most prolific discarders, right? In those communities, there is such an abundance of inventory that I have total confidence about the profitability at a local level. You know, so I'm I'm selling only a couple times a week from the trike. You know, I'm I'm outside of a bike shop that's right next to the Starbucks on my main street, right? Um, I'm at the farmer's market every Thursday, right? So I'm not spending a lot of hours and no. I'm making I'm making money, right? And then I'm also setting up and this this idea I'm so excited about. I, I have a few, you know, I'm 52, so technology is like really hard for me. My children are absolutely unhelpful and actually kind of hostile when I ask them for assistance, right? But they're terrible. They're terrible people. I hope they're. I hope they listen to this podcast. No, but um, my goal like me <laughs> right now. <laughs> my goal. Their names are Zach and Leah. My goal is to um, have a, a virtual thrift store. So you know, I, I toy with. Ultimately, should this have a, a a brick and mortar presence? I don't know. I'm not sure because I love the idea of connecting with consumers with the, you know these practical sales tool but also fun marketing thing which is like the trike right oh. and then having um a virtual thrift store and then delivery by bike within a specific zip code so oh. what i love about that right is it's i think it's pretty easy to do i'm trying to figure out the best selling platform that be con configured for local that maybe mm -hmm. also switch to um you know shippable later on because again the goal is to keep everything in use. So, you know, plan A would be sell everything within the same place, you know, where it was put away in somebody's closet. But plan B is sell it online, right? That it's still being being hopefully used and coveted by somebody who is going to take that thing, whether they bought it from, you know, Depop or Facebook Marketplace and use it instead of going to buy something new. That is, that's the most important thing, right? Yeah. So, so... So all of these sales channels are new for me just in the past three months, right? My first two quarters, my question was, gee, could I even accrue enough inventory to do this business? And you guys, people drive up to my house with car loads. I'm not joking. Car loads. They're like, are you home? Car loads of, of product. And they just put it outside of my driveway, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of it has tags on it still. I'm not surprised to hear this no. because I think your point and honing in on this um, specific, the specificity of the affluent yeah. population that are these kind of um, what's the word like rabid consumers. Yeah. I place myself in here. I'm not pointing a finger, but it's like you, you acquire all this stuff and yeah. then you feel 
guilty. I feel guilty. I have all this stuff. I don't want to just, I'm definitely not throwing it away. I don't feel like maybe the best thing happens to it if it gets dropped at Goodwill. Like I know they only sell maybe 10% of it. And then a lot of it gets like, or 20% and yeah. a lot of it gets then like bailed and sent overseas. And I'm just, I'm still figuring that out. So like, I think the local piece mm -hmm. is so important, especially you know of, or you actually know the person you're giving it to. Yeah. And you know that they're going, like you believe in what they're doing, yeah. you trust them. Yeah. And e like, even if they're kind of handing you your paycheck, they feel, I think that they feel better about that and more responsible about that. Also, they're more willing to do it. I think the, like the, the rise in buy nothing groups in general is because of the, you're less, you're not necessarily just hidden behind some screen of a, an app or, you know, Poshmark or whatever. You right. are a real person and you can see who that person is. And it's the sense of community. So you feel like I feel better giving my clothes to Cynthia, knowing Cynthia is going to wear it actually, or, or use it or whatever, versus me just sending it out into an abyss. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't know, maybe someone will wear it, maybe someone won't. And I think a lot of people also have um, like, kind of a misunderstanding of what happens when they send things for donation in general. So a lot of times people will send to these, these, you know, nonprofit thrift stores or like donation collection um, outlets. And they think it's going directly into the hands of someone who needs it. But that's pretty unlikely unless you are specifically bringing it to like a social service organization that has requested that exact item like the, and then they almost become disappointed that they're, that it's being resold for thrift and they really want this thing to go into the hands of somebody else. So that's why this whole community reuse, I think people like that because yeah. they really like this like tangible concept of reuse where they can physically see it going to the person or even yeah. to you, right? As this in-between, yep. but knowing that you are then going to hand that off to the next person and it's actually gonna stay within your community to someone that wants it and will use it and it's not going into some of this and you're like good luck yeah i think that's such a good point and i think um you know we should probably touch in a second on all of the, the great things that people feel about their community because you touched mm -hmm. on so much of it already but yes i i also i have by now six different organizations who need specific things mm -hmm. and so as i'm sorting glamorously sorting in my mouse infested garage. <laughs> I only saw one mouse, by the way, I don't have an infestation. Um, no, but as I'm sorting and going through this stuff, I'm, I've met all of the people that, that manage these organizations, right? So I know that the school that has a high number of um, families that are, that are eligible for assistance, I know that those families are going to use the, the clothing that I dropped off. And it's also, you know, it's it's sort of by size already. Like it's so easy for them to transfer it to the people who they know need it. Another crazy example, which is sort of a combination of social and environmental impact is take bras, right? I get bras dropped in all these things, right? People don't know what to do with their Please with their tell old us bras. what you do with the bras. This is our favorite, yeah. <laughs> so and and you know, this is this is an example, right? Somebody who might say, I care about sustainable fashion, if I need a new pair of black pants. I am going to get in my car and drive to the Goodwill or to Ohio Thrift or whatever, right? They're probably not going to do that if they need a bra. They're just, you know, it's just not, that's not how consumer habits exist today. But there is an organization um, in Columbus called Sanctuary Night that supports 
people, it again, it does tend to be mostly women, but people who have just left a sex trafficking uh, existence, right? And so guess what? When I collect a hundred bras, and I, obviously if they're terribly, you know, poor quality or terribly used, I take them out. But when I collect a hundred bras, that charity's like, yes, these people, they don't, they don't have anything when they come into our facility. So I love that I'm getting those bras to people who actually need a bra, number one, which is terrific. Um, but also those bras real, I, you know, I can't, I don't have quantitative data to support this, but I would bet those bras are getting landfilled somewhere. Yeah. If not, you know, so yeah. that's just one example of where at a local level, yeah, the impact is really, you know, it's really felt. Yeah. And then also people just love doing things for their schools or their communities. And, you know, I love, I talk to everybody. I get to talk to everybody. And it's like, it's fun to have conversations with just with whatever, about whatever people are interested in. But I think I am helping, you know, yeah. educate people in like a fun, soft, gentle, you know, way about. Yeah. I really do feel like this piece of community is part of what is going to make your business successful. Yeah. And it's hard to, I don't know if I would have, if I would have made that connection in my mind early on, like if you were talking about it as an idea, but hearing you talk about it now in practice, I'm kind of like, oh, that actually makes so much sense because you just, people just want to know, yeah. they want to know, they want to know the face, they want to have the trust. Like that, I think that's part of just the human condition is like, Absolutely. we want to have community and we want to be connected to the people around us. And when you go drop a huge carload of stuff off at Goodwill yeah. and you that's happens to be 20 minutes away. So it's not even in your community. You're kind of like, it doesn't yeah. feel very good, yeah. but I want to, because probably I would say let's, you know, go another five or so minutes or yeah. seven or so minutes. So <laughs> Laura, was there anything you were sitting on that you really wanted to ask? I'll ask that. Oh, as a next question or yeah. a next question? Oh, well, so my question, I guess, is um, how do you scale this for other communities? Like, are you going to put together um, like a, a, a franchise, you know, option or something like that? How can other um, cause I think your point of the affluent neighborhoods is a really good point. They, they do have right. a lot of stuff coming in and out and I feel like they have the ability to do this. So tapping into those networks throughout, I mean, you're in Ohio, but in other neighborhoods. So how would you scale this? Yeah. So this is a work in progress, but is, that is absolutely my, my goal. So I already have uh leaders from three other neighborhoods around columbus who have reached out to say we want to do this in our in our community and actually one of those uh one of those other municipalities invited me to be at their farmers market last weekend so i got to talk to so many people it was just so so fun and i'm uh, the next step is then to organize uh like this will be a virtual conversation just to share with these interested people what the process is like, you know, because again, my my strength is operational efficiency, right? So I and I have really operationalized a pretty complicated, right, and high labor thing. And so my goal is to identify a, a probably Elisa Goldsand, maybe one who's, you know, 20 or 30 years younger in each of these neighborhoods who can probably do this profitably as a side hustle, right? Yeah. So the details of is it a co-op is it a franchise i plan to have that 
sort of finalized and documented by the end of October. Um, but the the person in the community, the person needs to be in their community. They need to know who's in charge at the library to go and ask, you know, can I put my a bin here? They need to know, you know, they need to know how to connect with the heads of the PTO and of you know, they have to be somebody who is entrenched in that neighborhood. That's a yeah. really important component. But then what I what I want to offer in terms of like a franchise or co-op model, again, it's like Mary Kay for sustainability, right? Is um, I want to offer, you know, efficiency in the operations, also, you know, some quality assurance uh, guidance, marketing guidance, and even, um, you know, I think that I can offer the mindset of a big for for-profit brand in terms of how each of these communities should be approaching their their consumers, right? And so mm -hmm. there's the sense that you're solving lot, you're offering lots of solutions to a consumer, and that's what I think has been a little maybe a little bit missing from the the reuse the reuse model or a way to scale it, right? You want to drop it off, you want me to pick it up, etc., right? So I I would offer you know, at the at the product category level, what product categories maybe to focus on based on trend, what, you know, what a media kit should look like so that as people schedule an event, oh, and by the way, this is how to schedule an event, like look at what's happening in your community, right? Um, I would offer that, that ongoing behind the scenes roadmap and operational support while they are the face of their community and they're organizing people in their community to help with the volunteer labor and to help with the you know, with, with all of the, the work. Yeah. Would you take a profit from them? Like, or would you just yes, give this to them? Should. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. Let's lead her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, my intention yeah. would be to, to take a profit. I, I want to make sure that the, that the business is profitable for the person who takes it on first. Right. And this is where it gets really tricky because, um, you know, I, I said earlier that I had really struggled about whether to be for profit or not for profit. Am I allowed to say what makes me angry? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll try not to curse, Laura, so that you don't have to mark this as like explicit. What I think is tricky, though, is somehow anything related to sustainable fashion is also tied to you must also be a not for profit and feed the hungry and and clothe the poor and no. i care i care about all of that but then marketing yeah. the market the marketing budget of any company right is all about getting the consumer and there's reasons for this again there's no bad actors but the marketing team of a of a for-profit company is buy more buy more buy more unapologetic like there's no extended producer responsibility that's likely to be associated you know in the yeah. in the us with with manufacturing so to me, I'm like, well, no, I want to make a profitable way to scale reuse and it will have an environmental impact both domestically and there's a whole other environmental justice story that we don't have time on this podcast to get into, right? And social impact. And yes, it is unapologetically for profit too. And that's okay. So that's yeah. okay. Yes, I, I think that's really important. And that's why, well, why y'all know yes. that no, like, I think so, we sustainability has to be built into businesses. Yes. Ha, 
There are businesses that exist that believe in sustainability and they're profitable businesses. Eileen Fisher is a profitable business yeah. and they are, you know, always working to become more sustainable and it has to be a good business decision. And it should, it just, yeah, I just, I want to, I feel so strongly yeah. about that. Also, Lisa, that like you are trying to start this, um, you know, this new organization that honestly, the way you're talking about it, it could become a huge yeah. franchise, which I love the idea of the franchise. I think of the Jersey Mike subs, but <laughs> I was reading an article about them recently and like the value that you bring, that is the value that, you know, the Jersey Mike yeah. franchise, it's like, they help you set up your shop that you can call, you know, they make sure you're successful. Yeah. That's why you're paying them because somebody, yeah, in some random town near you could start their own, um, version of what you're doing but i bet you it wouldn't be as thought out yeah. they wouldn't get to learn from your mistakes they no. wouldn't have all of your best practices like yeah. that's what you should be paid for right. so yeah. i feel so strongly that this is a business that you're you know yeah. it has to be something that like sustainability in general circularity we have to innovate that they become these profitable business models yeah. and that's i mean that's also how we're gonna get big business to follow so right you can't i think that also when it's when there's too many of these then there's too many organizations or businesses uh, business ideas i guess like yours and they start as nonprofits, it becomes not like no one takes it seriously because it doesn't have a profit. And so you can't, places feel like you, or brands feel like you can't scale that idea because it's a nonprofit and it's not a business. But then you have this side part to you where you feel like you need to be doing like the good work and that there shouldn't be a profit behind it because you should be doing more of the social aspect. But I feel like we can't actually scale reuse in general and like community reuse if we don't start making it a business and show the profitability of it and showing that community reuse can turn a profit if we actually start doing it and right. do it right. properly i think that it had like i think to, in in my opinion i feel like the only real community reuse that's been um like monetized are like small thrift stores right and that's if that's our only like thing to to um whatever to look at or comparison then that's not we're not going to be able to get any further so i feel like i i'm also on board yeah. for having this fully profitable and a business and not a nonprofit. so yeah and you said something interesting and i know we're almost out of time but i think too thrift stores are wonderful right and <laughs> and the curated aspect of them is wonderful i'm thinking that it, with a little bit more scale especially thinking about the fact that at a local level you have common seasonality shared interest in certain brands, silhouettes, color, all of that stuff, right? You could probably expand to some of those more core categories, core clothing categories, which by the way, may also are the ones that are being produced in big volume and have an impact on the environment. If you can make that even easier and more normative for reuse to be, if you need something, you just are part of this, this local thing that's happening. You know when a swap is, you know where to go to find things. I think that can really move the needle on sustainability, you know, pretty quickly, potentially. It's also ease of access. I mean, the accessibility of it, I think, is probably one of the most important points of it is like in I, I've done a case study, I'm uh, a buy nothing group. And the main point was that it was so accessible that it was people were willing to do stuff because it was right there that they didn't have to go someplace else they didn't have to order it or ship it right. it was right there on their 
you know, their time frame and like, you know, whatever they knew of when something was happening, but they could, they could see the, the, you know, the, the real life scheduling. And um, yeah. I think that that totally. is an important part. So. So I want to ask, because we're trying to wrap and Lisa, I mean, we could probably talk with you for a few hours. Oh, but, several um, hours. Yes. <laughs> is there anything that you really wanted to chat about that we haven't yet? No, I think I think we've covered almost all of it. The last thing I wanted to mention that I'm really passionate about and that I also think resonates at a local level is I am endeavoring to quantify the environmental impact of my community's efforts, right? So I have a somebody who does data and data intake at each of the events that I have and I apply at the product category level the estimated impact in terms of um, carbon emissions offset and reduced water and energy use from, and you know, there of course there are many assumptions, all of this is imperfect, right? But from the, let's say, 10 pairs of woven pants that went home with a new owner and presumably precluded that owner from buying something new, right? So I'm tracking all of that at a local level and Gen Z, and people in general, but Gen Z especially, they really like that. They like the idea that not only is somebody trying to do something local, but they're quantifying the impact. And I think people can really get around that as well as like a, as a concept. So that's something I'm really excited about too. I actually had that in the in the notes of something that I wanted to bring up. So I'm really glad that you did is I think that's a real strength of yours. And I think that that's another place where you're innovating and pushing something kind of into the future or like into the present. Yeah, me too. I also wrote that in my notes of things I want to talk about too. With metrics and your yeah. data. I think yeah. that that's, that's my language. That's my love language is <laughs> data and metrics. And you said quantifying. Writing and that down, Laura. I'm going to know that about you now forever. <laughs> I don't know how we get along so well. Um, yeah, well, I love that. And so um, you know, we could keep talking about that. But um, yeah, I think we we can we can wrap up. Is there anything else about metrics? I mean No, I love that. I mean, I think you're right. I think that having those data points is really appealing to to the younger generations. Um but I think also the the community too. I think we we go through this like ebb and flow of generations of like how they I don't know, communicate with their communities or, you know, how they interact with it, especially as like if they're living with their parents versus on their own or if they've like how that works. So um, I don't know. I think like the year end data from all of these events and stuff would be fascinating to see. So yeah, um, I also feel like it's, I, I guess I, I don't know if this is true, but it feels like your kind of experience of working in large, a large corporation for many years that, you know, data is really king mm -hmm. in most corporations. And so I think bringing that facet and aspect into this, um, you know, much kind of smaller, like building operation, but local, it just, it kind of, um, it almost feels a little bit like, uh, perpendicular or like it's not it's a little unexpected which is really yes. nice um yeah. and so that that's awesome that you're yeah. doing that good for you yeah and the yeah. last thing i want to say is and sorry laura we're shifting away from data which is your well, language okay. don't worry <laughs> i have one the, last, the last thing i want to say just about community is i have never I am a happy person in general. That is, I've always, I've always erred on the glass half full side. But 
I just want to share with both of you, I have never been happier in my entire life than doing this project. And it's because I am, I'm connected with so many people in my community and I get so much energy and joy from all of those interactions. And I think that's, it's, it's been very humbling for me to, to yeah. go through that this year and really just, you know, really lean into and enjoy that. So I think that is another aspect of why this concept really, you know, could be, could be big and is important to people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I, I really, um, I appreciate you sharing and I, yeah. I relate on maybe a similar wavelength, but I think I would venture to say part of that is also leaving and not being part of a gigantic corporation where like everything is global and it's really, even if you feel connected and you've worked there for a long time, I would still say that in my experience, right, mm -hmm. it's like, it's still very different than having something where you're much more connected with your truly local community. Um, I also would venture in my experience that making a lot of money um, seems like you, you would happy. make you yeah. happy, but it actually does. It's not the thing that makes you the most happy. No, no. Um, it's and the thing that makes you the most it's happy. It's the work you're yeah. doing. <laughs> I, that's what I think. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do feel very connected to all of the people all over the world who I knew and have worked with for so long, but there is something about this like constant, you know, ex access to, to other humans that is pretty great. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We should end there. Yeah. That's nice. <laughs> humans are great. Humans, humans are, great are great in real life yeah <laughs> um well thanks for this virtual meeting yeah <laughs> oh, thank no, you so much um really this glad to have this conversation and i think you know just um this topic and what you're doing is really inspiring yeah. and i'm excited to hear a few months from now and a year from now how it's going and we'll be signing up to be your uh, first uh, oh, yeah. franchise in new york and yeah. like you know so no but thank you lisa you're doing wonderful work Yes, thank, thank you. you. Okay.